Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Let's stand up together, can we? Shall I read this for us? You can follow along there on the screens. At the end, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with a hearty, thanks be to God. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. And when I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. And then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is the sign of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done. You can have a seat. Well, this has happened, I think, to all of us. It happened to me again, actually, this week. I'm not going to share that particular story with you. But I, I saw someone, or you see someone in the, your everyday uh, experience, your everyday interactions and encounters, and, or you're introduced to someone, and something about this person, just right from the moment you see them or are briefly introduced, it just, it turns you off. Something about this person just sort of rubs you the, the, wrong, the, the wrong way. Maybe they seem arrogant, maybe they seem angry, maybe they seem self-centered, maybe they just seem like mean, but, but whatever it is about them, it just doesn't work for you. Maybe they look differently than you, or maybe they come from a different generation uh, than you, or a different background, or, or something different. And initially, they appear to be someone that you could never really get along with, much less be friends with. Uh, but how many times have we discovered, as I did again this week, that if we will simply extend ourselves to these people in a way that perhaps pushes us out of our comfort zone just a little bit or a, a lot bit, if we will take the time to, to get to know someone, if we'll take the time to actually have an extended interaction or conversation with this person, if we'll listen to this person, learn more about them and what's important to them, what it is that they value why they are the way they are. How many times, if we do all that, will we begin to get a bit of an appreciation for this person? Let's be honest. Perhaps sometimes after extended conversations, our initial observations are confirmed. That happens as well, right? And we can acknowledge that reality. But there are many other times where when we get to know someone in relationship, in interaction, that, uh, that, that we begin to appreciate them and value them, to trust them even, to, to like them 
even, as the individual and unique people that they are. I, I've had the privilege, and I actually mentioned this uh, last week when Chris Adams was here to speak with us, but I've had the privilege of being a part of a meeting in a beautiful uh, part of the world, in Estes Park, Colorado. Anybody ever been to Estes Park, Colorado? It's a it's a pretty magnificent place, and for the last several years, I've been invited to go to a meeting there just after Labor, uh, Memorial Day, and uh, it's, I, I always go for a couple of reasons. One of them is it's in Estes Park. I mean, come on, it's not a bad place to go. But the other reason is that this is a very special meeting. It's, it's a meeting that is, is hosted by the, one of the denominational leaders that, of the denomination we're part of, the Church of the Nazarene, who happened to be one of my, my pastors when I was back in college. I think that's probably why I got an invite. But um, it's a meeting that he hosts. He's the director of clergy development. That just means he works in developing clergy or pastors. And, and, he, and he hosts this meeting every year. And what he does at this meeting is he invites pastors. He invites four different types of people. He invites pastors he invites district superintendents, who are pastor's bosses, and he invites college faculty, uh, especially from Nazarene universities like Point Loma, Northwest Nazarene, another one, Mount Vernon, I think is the name of it, uh, different, different college faculty to this meeting. And then the last group of people that he invites are, are uh, personnel from, from headquarters, from you know, the home office. And basically what he wants to do is to get us all together because in the history of clergy development, and please stay with me in this story, in the history of clergy development, these four groups of people have had very different perspectives on how pastors should be equipped and trained and, and encouraged and, and uh uh, resourced both in the preparation to become a pastor, but also after they become a pastor. And not only have they had different ideas, but at many times in the course of history, these four entities have like butted heads over how this training should happen. The, the pastors think it should happen one way, the district superintendents think this should be happening, the college, college faculty think this should be happening, and the headquarters, home office people think it should be happening a completely different way. And what my friend, Dan, Pastor Dan, Dan Cobb found out is that it was very important to get these four groups of people around tables, around tables with a view of the mountains of Estes Park <laughs> in the background, where we could sit and talk and think and not be rushed where we could go away from our meetings into a meal and sit around a, a buffet dinner and share conversation and interaction and ask each other about our children and our families and our churches. And, and to, to move outside of the dining room into the, into the wilderness and to go on hikes together and to breathe that mountain air together. And what he's discovered is that as we live in relationship with one another and we get to know each other, then good things happen. In fact, this is it really interesting. Every time I go to this meeting, Pastor Dan gets up and he says, we will always have this meeting. We will always have this meeting. As long as I am the director of clergy direct development, we will always have this meeting. Because when I first took this job, I asked his, he, he says, I asked my predecessor, what's one thing you wish you would have done differently? 
And his predecessor had held meetings like this for years back in the 80s and early 90s, but then the budget had run thin and they had stopped having the meetings. And he said, as soon as they stopped having these meetings, the problem started all over again. So Pastor Dan is committed to these meetings. I'm committed to going there. Good things happen. Here's the thing I want you to take away from that. Good things happen in relationship. Turn to someone next to you, kids, everybody, someone next to you, and and for one minute, just share with each other a, a time recently when you misjudged someone And as you got to know them, it was a much better deal than you could have imagined it would have been. All right, go. Just share with someone, have them share back with you. A time when you misjudged someone, as soon as you got to know them, hopefully it's not the person that you're talking to that you misjudged. I'm not going to tell you who it was that I did that with this week. It wasn't any of you. It wasn't any of you. I, I promise that. It's kind of a long way to, to, to get this point across, but good things do happen in relationship. When we spend time together, good results come about. When there isn't relationship, there isn't trust, there isn't communication, there isn't goodwill. Where there is relationship, there's sharing, there's, there's vulnerability. There's learning, there's growing, there is, there is life. And we can imagine that if this is true in our relationships with other human people, the people that you're sitting next to and the people that you met this week or in recent time and you'd misjudge, but you got to know them and it was a different story. You can imagine if it's true in our interaction with human people, then how true it is also of our interaction and our understanding of God. Where there is relationship. We're not just talking about a knowledge of or an awareness of, but where there is interaction with and relationship with the living God. Then there is is trust. Then there is vulnerability. There's access. There's there's life. There's, There's possibility. There's room for God to do his work in us. And where there's coolness or where there's distance between us and God. There are walls, there are barriers, and there simply isn't that same opportunity. Good things don't have as much opportunity to happen when there's not relationship. We're entering into the season of Lent, this 40-day plus five Sundays period of time leading up between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, leading up to a celebration of Christ's resurrection, but during this season of Lent, we're, we're making space as Christians are doing around the world and in all sorts of Christian traditions and have done so for, for centuries. We're, we're making space. We're putting ourselves in a position, we want to at least, where God can do his best work in us. Lent is not just about not eating 
sweets. It's not just about not eating meat. It's not just about giving this or that up. It's about creating space. It's about setting some things aside so we can set God more at the center of our hearts and of our our lives. Drawing near to him, knowing that he's drawing near to us. Lent is about growing our relationship. It's about establishing or nourishing, nurturing our relationship with with God, opening ourselves to his guidance, opening ourselves to his correction, if that needs to be the case, opening ourselves to his, his loving and God's guiding hand at work in our lives and in our community, believing that in relationship with him, good things are happening to us and good things as happened this weekend even, good things are happening through us to the world around us. And so on the Sundays of Lent this year, we're going to be reading and learning together from several passages in the Old Testament, as we've already read this morning, several passages in the Old Testament that, that have to do with this idea of covenant. Did you notice that word in the passage we read from Genesis just a few moments ago? It was there about... 25 times, maybe not quite that many, but it, it was a lot. Over and over, God is speaking of covenant in that passage. And each of the situations that we're going to look at are unique and distinct from the others, but taken together, these portions of Scripture on the idea of covenant, and I know that's kind of a big word, but taken together, these passages that speak about covenant speak powerfully of this one powerful and incredible truth that marks the biblical narrative from start, start to finish. (laughs) It's simply this, that God longs to be in relationship with us. Amen. Anybody? Amen. God longs. God wants, God desires, it's God's heart to be in relationship with his creation. As we noticed in this passage that we read, not only with human people, but with all of creation, God longs for this. And these passages that speak of covenant reinforce this over and over again. A covenant is, it's, it's an agreement, and in some situations in the Old Testament, even in the ancient Near East, it was a, a binding agreement, perhaps, almost like a contract. But in many ways, the, the language of covenant is also language of, of promise, and so that's the subtitle for this series, covenant, yes. But we are people, and Trish spoke of it and read scripture of it even this morning, We are people of the promises of God. And we are people of the promise of God that he longs to be in relationship with us. We stand on this promise that the God who created all things, who set it into motion, who sustains it by his his power and his strength is the same God who intervenes and interacts and longs to be in personal relationship with us. We stand on this promise today. The promise that we read about in Genesis 9 is a promise of renewed covenant. 
that God is making with Noah and his sons and with all of creation in those verses that we, that we read. Comes at the close of the story of the flood. It much, has much to say to us about our understanding of who God is, how we're to understand him in our world today. The story of the flood, unfortunately, most of us, maybe when we hear anything regarding the story of the flood, we just kind of maybe shut our brains off a little bit because we, we know that story. Right? We've heard that story for a long time. The, the problem is that many of us have put ourselves into two camps when it comes to the story of, of the flood, of, of Noah's Ark. One of, one of those camps is, is the, the camp of uh, God loves all the animals and God puts a rainbow in the sky for us to know just how much he loves us. And this camp decorates their church nurseries and their children's rooms with waves of water and a nice big boat and happy animals that like each other and a rainbow that goes over it all. The other interpretation of it, the other camp of Noah's Ark is anything but a children's story. The other interpretation is that of an angry, vengeful God who is so mad at humanity, offended by what they have done to him that he desires in his wrath to take them all out, to wipe them from the face of the earth, save but one family and the animals. It's a story about a God, seriously, who anybody would be crazy to want to deal with. A story about a God of wrath, ready and willing to strike down the sinful and the disobedient. Right? Here's the camps. And I don't know if you'd recognize both of these before, but this is where a lot of folks are falling, and, and we kind of either think one or the other or somewhere in between, but we've heard this story, but we don't, and we don't need to go back to this story, but we need to go back to this story, because what if neither of these are, are really the story? What if, what if the story is actually something different? What if the story is, is something more true? What if the story is something more powerful? What if the story is more hopeful? What if, what if, what if, hear me, in fact, this is a story of a God who will work in whatever way necessary to draw back into relationship with him those that he loves, those that he longs for. Again and again, we see it. The, the flood narrative is just a culmination of the sinfulness of humanity. It started in Genesis 3. I mean, we just, we just barely got through creation and sin enters the world. Brokenness, uh, just distortion, um, sinfulness. We watch it from three, chapter 3 to 6. If you look back in Genesis, you don't have to right now, but you can if you want. I mean, we watch it just like spiral downward. We watch humanity just get in the the toilet bowl of existence. And I mean, we just go, we just watch humanity go deeper and deeper. It's like this and then this and, th and can you believe it? And then this 
And then this, finally we come to chapter 6, and I don't have this on the screen, but we read these words, God saw, that everything, God saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. That's verse 5 of chapter 6. God saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Can you just imagine? I don't think we can. But the, the brokenness that God felt, we're not actually told there that God's response was one of vengeance or anger or offense even, but rather of sorrow and of sadness. Verse 6 tells like this, the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. And the NLT translates the next line, it broke his heart. God looked at the sin of humanity, the sin of the world, the downward spiral, and it broke his heart. It made him sorry, sorrowful that he had ever even created them and put them on this earth, and so God sends the flood not, out of, not as an act of revenge, but out of grief and brokenness at humanity's lack of a right relationship with him. I, I just, I mean, I think about this. This is really, really, like, very minimal compared to what was going on in the heart of God, but it just works for me, and maybe it works for some of you guys, because when I was a kid, I did something wrong one day, and my dad, some of you heard me tell this story before, my dad pulled me Actually, my mom said, go to your room and wait for your dad to get home. Anybody ever get that said to you? You still ever get that said to you? We should pull that one back, parents. But I, maybe dads, you should say, go to your room, wait for your mom to get home. I mean, that, that might be really how it could be today. But um, yeah, so I mean, I went to my room and I, I don't remember how long, but it seemed like hours that I was in my room, you know, waiting for my dad to get home and just, just fearful. Just, just worry, just imagine, dreaming about all the things that my dad would say and do to me when he got home because he'd get the report from my mom first. He wouldn't hear my side and, 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 and he'd just come in and he wouldn't, I wouldn't get to explain anything. And I mean, the, the scenarios were, were just spinning in my head as to what was going to happen here. And I remember when my dad finally did get home, the door opened and I'm just, you know, to the house and then the door to my room and I'm just afraid and you can feel the tension mounting even now I'm going back to that place trauma <laughs> and uh, but I remember my dad just saying you know I, I gotta give you a spanking I'm like no you don't no you really don't let's discuss this dad I don't remember how old I was probably you know 17 no I was, I was much much younger much younger, but I got to give you a spanking. No, you, no, we can talk, we, let's, no, I, we can, well, Jane, Jamie, at the time, Jamie, you, you know that this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> then you don't have to do it, Dad. <laughs> got an easy solution to fix both my pain and yours. You do not have to do this. 
But that, that line just kind of came back to me as I read this story again. This hurts me more than it hurts you. And, and, and again, very, I don't mean to trivialize by any means the flood narrative because it's anything but, but trivial. But, but I, I, I really actually, knowing now how my dad felt then, I actually think he was telling the truth. He felt like this was something that he had to do, but, but it did hurt him more than it hurt me. My, my pain was over in, you know, a few minutes, if that. Seconds, probably. But, but that, that, that's hard on a parent to discipline sometimes a child. And I, I, I can kind of hear God just saying, this hurts me more. If, if, that, if anyone could ever understand that in all of creation, for God to say, it hurts me more than it hurts even the world. This is, this is the place where God was in this moment. And so this covenant then that we've read about this morning, coming after the floodwaters had receded, after Noah and his sons had been commanded to go and to multiply and to be fruitful and to again repopulate the earth, uh, this, this covenant marks a new turn. It's a fresh start, both in the heart of God and in his relationship with people. See, the interesting thing about this, this covenant, this new turn, this fresh start for God is that, is that nothing really had changed among humanity. I mean, Noah was a good and upright person and his family, and we'll see some other issues there, but, but, but that's why he was selected and he was faithful and all these good things. But nothing really, the, the water, the floodwaters had washed away humanity from the earth, but the floodwaters had not washed away sin from the heart of humanity. You see, in some ways, things had changed dramatically, but in other ways, things had really not changed at all in terms of the human condition. And yet, here is God saying, never again. And that marks a, 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 new, a new turn, a, a new change in, in the heart, in the heart of God. He'll take the first step. He'll, he'll initiate. In fact, notice, if you look back, think back to the text, all the language of this covenant, usually covenant is thought of as a, like, a, I'll do this and you do that, like an agreement, like a, I'll be your God, you be my people kind of thing. But notice this covenant, it's all on God. It's all on his shoulders. Listen to the language. I hereby confirm. I am giving. I have placed. When I send clouds, I will remember. It is God who is the primary actor. Humanity will have a part to play in this scene for sure, but it is God who is the primary actor in this covenant. It is God who is, who is, who is putting the full burden of this covenant on his shoulders. It's this God who shows himself not to be dependent on any response of humanity in expressing his full commitment to them. You see this? I mean, get this. He's not waiting for them to, Noah or anyone that came about to say, yeah, we're really sorry about that, by the way. He doesn't wait. I hereby confirm my covenant with you before you get a chance to say anything, Noah. Noah. I'm on the hook. I'm on the line. Never 
again, here is a God marked not by conditionality, but by amazing grace. Here's a God invested fully in creating and sustaining and blessing all of creation, giving fully to us, nothing held back. One person said it like this that I read this week. Perhaps it's the same divine heart that grieved over human sinfulness that is now moved by that same grief to seek another way (laughs) to get through to us. So God promises Noah and all of creation never to destroy all the earth with a flood again. And as the sign of his promise, God says, look for the rainbow. Noah, look for the rainbow. Ah, rainbows, don't they make us feel warm and fuzzy and colorful and all these great things? It's like the freshness after the rain. But here, it's a sign of the covenant. And then some people hear this and they hear God talking about the rainbow and they think that's what he's talking about, the rainbow. And, and, and the rainbow, I don't know what you've heard or what you've thought about this, but, but one that I read this week just really resonated with me. It's this, it's this expanse that, or it's this, this, this bridge that touches across the expanse between heaven and earth and connects us to one another. It's this wonderful reminder of God's presence among us, light that reflecting after the darkness, a reminder of God's great love and care for us. And if that's, if that's all it means, then that's good enough for me. But there are other scholars, interestingly, that I read this week, I didn't know this, that, that, that point out that this word rainbow can also simply be translated bow, as in bow and arrow, <laughs> as in a weapon, <laughs> as in a tool of, of, of violence. And some suggest that by placing the bow in the clouds, that here God is marking his intention to abandon forever any way of violence that had perhaps marked his activity to this point for a new turn of complete and unconditional covenantal love. Now, There are parts of that I really like. There are parts of that I'm not so sure about, just to be completely honest with you. But I, I like this image of God just hanging up the bow. I'm done with that. I'm retired from battle. <laughs> and whatever else it is, Noah, let this be a symbol to you, a sign for all who are to come that that will never, ever ever again be a way in which God interacts with his people. That's off the table. It's interesting, if you notice this, that we often think that a rainbow is there to remind us 
of God's faithfulness and of God's love. But what God actually says in this passage is that it's there to remind him. It's like a string around his finger. I'm not sure God needs that, but it's there to remind him of his pledge and his commitment. And so when we see a rainbow, not only are we reminded of God's love, but we're reminded that God is reminded. It may be a little too far-fetched. I read a story this week about a, uh, a police officer, maybe you saw it in the newspaper, who had won a wrongful termination suit, lawsuit, from the police department that he had been fired from. And they didn't lay out all the reasons, but it, it appeared that one of the primary reasons that he was fired was because, because he actually when confronted by a person who he responded to a call for domestic violence at a home and the young man came out into the driveway with a gun pointed at the police officer, simply yelling at him, just shoot me, just shoot me, I don't want to live, just shoot me. And the police officer instead laid down his weapon, didn't, didn't shoot. And, and again, there were other things that were happening, I'm sure, in the department, but, but this was the one that was brought back, and in a day and age when we have had so many problems with police violence and all these kinds of things, here was an example of one who put down his weapon and, and was apparently punished for, for doing so. Just I, All the details aside, while they're important, set them aside for a moment and just imagine that scene with me for a moment. The young man with a death wish, just shoot me, just shoot me. And the police officer putting his gun down, deciding that that would no longer be an option, no longer on the table. I I think about that in terms of this covenant, we in our self-destructive behaviors, our sinful and disobedient choices, a world that's broken all around us, and yet God says, I'm putting it down, I'm hanging it up. The only way from here on out that I'm going to interact with you is through unconditional covenantal love. I am so deeply committed to you and to your well-being that that is my promise. This promise that we stand on from this story this morning is that God will try anything and everything else to get through to us. He will seek after us and he will seek after us even in our brokenness, even in our disobedience. He will never stop pursuing us despite or perhaps because of his knowledge and awareness of every dark spot on our heart or every question or every uncertainty or every doubt or every emotion that we may feel that we may think separates us from God. Actually, that is what draws God even nearer to us. It's what actually motivates him if he can be motivated to pursue us even more diligently. 
whatever dwells in our hearts that keeps us from hearing the harmony of all life in God's care. God will not give up on loving us in the restoration. The promise is that this deep love of God for creation, this deep love, the promise is that, that this deep love that God had for creation and has for creation, it eventually, listen, it eventually would move him to act. It would, it would move him to act in the most strange and surprising way. This, this unswerving commitment to love in spite or because of our sinfulness and brokenness would move him to act in the most surprising and strange way by putting on flesh and dwelling among us by moving into our neighborhood by becoming one of us taking on humanity so that he might love us fully and save us fully. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant. And in a broken world in which we live, as Danny prayed, I don't know how many of you got to read just some of the articles and short biographies of 14 and 15, 16-year-old kids and teachers and coaches whose lives were taken this week. And we were all just shaken to the, to the, to the core. And, and, in a, and in a world where there's a need for... Uh, care for the immigrants and where there's a need for care for the homeless and where there's a need not only for care but for justice for these in a world where there's there's great strife and war and terrorism and racial tension in a world like this we need to know more than ever that we have a God like the one we have who is seeking after us as we get drawn into that and pulled out of that and whatever, wherever we find ourselves, we have a God who's seeking after us so much so in covenantal love that he sent his one and only son to be the expression of that to us. I invite our worship team to come on up here. We're going to sing an, an old hymn, I, I think, is this next song, is that right, Trish? Standing. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. But it's one that, it's one that uh, I sang a lot when I was a kid. And uh, maybe some of you sung it. Some of you have never heard it. And if you've never heard it, it'll probably be easier for you to sing it than if you've heard it. It's, it's an old hymn that just it's called Standing on the Promises. Standing on the Promises. And this morning, we, as we sing this, let's remind ourselves, let's be reminded that we are people who stand on this particular promise, this particular promise that in spite of or perhaps even because of our sin and brokenness, 
God makes his move toward us in relationship, ultimately in and through his son, Jesus. Let's stand together. Stand on this promise as we worship the Lord.